0: Hello there, and welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos. I'm Pastor J. Dillon Proctor, and I'm gonna come over here and talk with our friendly skunk, Mr. Stanley Stankup. Stanley, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. And are you ready for a new idea that will help you grow your church?
0: Well, you know, Stanley, if I'm gonna be honest, I'm not sure. We determined both of your previous ideas to be deadly lies for the church.
1: Well, I guess if you're being honest, I should be honest. They're really not my ideas in the sense that I came up with them. Uh, You see, I was working or looking for church growth myself and I just went around and got a bunch of stuff that I thought would work and thought maybe we could see.
0: Well, I I see. That kind of makes a little bit of sense now. Well. Are you ready for us to check out a new idea? Is that where we're gonna go now?
1: Yeah, 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 let let me go find one. Hold hold on one second, I've got another coin for you. I really think this one will work. Oh, oh, okay, here we go, yes, this is it. Oh, oh, oh my goodness, oh, here you go. Okay,
0: so we've got another coin for today and we'll find out if this is a new idea or maybe it's a, a bad idea. But on one side it says, you must obey and it's got that gavel right there. Let's see what's on the other side. Oh, this other side it says, a seat at the table. Now it's interesting, this table that they've got there has a, a globe on it. So this is kind of the world's table that we've got here. This is an interesting coin there, mm-hmm. so, these so two sides.
1: Yeah, put it put it in the bank and I'll give you your All new right. idea.
0: There we go. Into the bank, we'll see what happens now.
1: All right, are you ready for it? Sure. Here is your new idea. You need a seat at the world's table if you want to be relevant.
0: So you need a seat at the world's table if you want to be relevant. Now, that's interesting. In the church, we do want to be relevant. There's a lot of people who are wondering how we can be relevant. But we need a seat at the world's table in
1: order to be relevant. Yes, yes, yes. You see, yeah, if you want to be relevant in the culture, and the world around you, uh, you need to make sure that you have a seat at the table of power. You need to be involved in the government or, or whatever kind of system of power is out there around you.
0: All right. Well, that's interesting, Stanley Stankup. We're going to go to the studio and talk about that. In the studio and thank you all for joining us we're looking at our study of seven deadly lies that are in the church and the idea we have to contemplate today is this you need a seat at the world's table if you want to be relevant so again now that we're in the studio we've got a full crew of clergy in the church of nazarene to discuss this topic my name is pastor jay dylan proctor and there are a few others here with me in the studio
1: i'm pastor amanda sparrow
2: pastor anthony alegria
3: and i'm pastor mike proctor And today I was called a piddler and so the piddler has a riddle for you and we'll reveal the answer at the the end of the program, but right now, kings and queens may cling to power and gestures got his call, but as you may discover, the common one outranks them all. How is this so?
0: Yeah, that's going to be a fun one for us to think about. And it relates to our conversation on power, because that's really what we're talking about today. We're talking about getting in bed with power, governmental things. It's kind of the subtext, but we're here looking to the deep root of that, this whole notion that you need a seat at the world's table if you want to be relevant. But before we go any further, Pastor Anthony, would you pray for us as we get into our conversation today?
2: Yes, sir. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may the meditations of our hearts here in this studio and in the audience. And may the words of our mouths be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. And thanks again for joining us again. Remember to download
0: our podcast on different places, on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast, CastBox. And please check out our YouTube channel. I know there's a lot of traffic that happens there on Facebook, but we do have a YouTube channel. We've had a hard time getting that one off the ground, but please check out us on YouTube there at Kingdom of the Logos. And if you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash logos. But today we're going to be talking about this idea that you need a seat at the world's table if you want to be relevant. So to open this up, I want us to take us way back in time and we're going to talk about the whole idea of Friday the 13th, October. A lot of these things are considered spooky, like it's unlucky if you have a cat run in front of you. It's unlucky to be born on October 13th and Friday the 13th but there is a history behind all this. Today we're going to talk about a man named Pope Clement and how he was a leader in the church who struggled with this idea that you've got to submit to power if you want to be relevant in the world. So going all the way back to the year 1307, there on October 13th, if you were in Europe, there was something big happening that day. There were a bunch of arrests going around requiring all Christian nations to arrest a certain group of people if you were really Christian. Now, The person who made this request was not actually the Pope, though he used the Pope's name. And the people that were charged to be arrested, they were the Knights Templar. Now, this is a fascinating thing from history. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Knights Templar, the Pope, and the King of France, and how all these things relate together. So, on Friday the 13th, in October of 1307, King Philip IV of France, he sent out this order to arrest all of the Knights Templar. Now, this was something which was pretty strange at the time because he would employed a lot of Knights Templar to help run some of the financial things he had going on in France. He, they were kind of being his personal guards, guarding some different things. And the Knights Templar, they're a pretty interesting group of people. Yes, they are associated with the Crusades, but they were really a fraternity of Christian men who they were. They were Christian men who did different things throughout the world. Some of it was more directly related with Crusades. Other of it was more practical with different aspects of society. And, yeah, there's a whole lot of mystery about them. Um, we're not here to explain away all that mystery or give all the answers, but we are looking at this day when they were arrested and this was ultimately the end of the Knights Templar as it existed in that form of it being a group of knights that really had a lot of influence. So on this day, King Philip, he sends out this this letter to have all of them arrested. Now where Pope Clement comes into all this is because he, again, he's the Pope, he's the head of the Catholic Church there on this earth. Again, Jesus Christ is the true head of the church. But Pope Clement, he had already suspected a few things about the Knights Templar that he wanted to investigate, but suddenly he gets bombarded by King Philip sending out this letter that says, arrest them all. And he says, do this in the name of Christianity and the Pope. Now when the Pope gets words of this, this wasn't something hissing out. So he was kind of blindsided by this, especially considering that he wanted to investigate them. Again, we are sinners and people do sinful things. And the Knights Templar, there are all these rumors, these legends around them that maybe they had a lot of gold. Maybe they had a lot of stuff um, stacked up in Jerusalem. Uh, and that's really one of the things that the pope wanted to investigate but when he finds out that the king of france has arrested them all he finds out that he they haven't been arrested for any real legitimate accusation in fact it's almost all that they're to be accused of witchcraft of heresy and stuff that is obviously fake if you're there in the time so if you're there on this friday the 13th and you're the pope and you're watching all this happen you're put in a very difficult position because the pope At this point in time, there had been a lot of people out there called anti-popes. There's going to be another anti-pope. This isn't yet the big schism, but the world is kind of divided. And there are some people who kind of look to the pope as being a leader. There are others who don't. And the pope is really struggling to be relevant in the world. Now, if you can think of this as like a fourth grader who's a bully, when the fourth grader is dealing with the kindergartners, it's really easy to be a bully. And that's kind of where the pope is. He has a lot of power. He's kind of assertive in a lot of things. But when he's dealing with the King of France, it's like you're a fourth grade bully with another fourth grade bully. And those two have a really different relationship with one another. And it just so happened that the King of France was the bigger fourth grade bully. And when the Pope saw him doing this, he kind of thought, well, I'll just kind of be passive and lay down for this one. So all of these men who were in the Knights Templar, they get arrested and they get tortured. They're getting beat. They're being forced to confess to things that they didn't do. I mean, a lot of these charges, they come from witchcraft. There were these rumors that they had an idol that they would all touch and it had a beard and stuff like that. There were some sexual immoralities that they were accused of. But for the Pope, he knew there was some real stuff that needed to be investigated. But it really wasn't witchcraft. It wasn't this stuff that they're being investigated of. The, the king of France, he's really doing some crooked things here, and he's doing it in the pope's name. But the pope is in this position where he says, well, if I want to be in power, you know, the king of France may come arrest and kill me too. So over the next seven years, the pope sat there, and he watched as the Templar knights. They were being tortured. They were being beat. The pope had several of them brought to him, and they were telling they said, you know, we're accused of this stuff. We didn't do it, and we were beat and tortured, and we were forced to confess to this stuff. And the Pope, over the course of seven years, he, he never really took a strong stand against the King of France. And even though he was being a kingmaker, doing all these things to bless people, put people in power in other places, again, it's kind of like that fourth grader who's fine bullying kindergartners, but when he's next to another fourth grader, maybe a fifth grader, he kind of do not want to be a bully anymore. And the Pope, he never did anything to help out these Knights Templars in a, a real and meaningful way because he did not want to lose his role in the board. He didn't want to be pushed out of power. And this is a really tragic thing because in the end, by the year 1314, the Knight Templars, they're pretty much all burned at the stake. Um, you, you find there Jacques de Molay, who's the grandmaster. He gets burned at the stake. The king of France, he's thinking, you know, I've got him here. I'm burning him. Surely he'll give me all this treasure and stuff. He never does it. And they die. And in that moment, the Knights Templar, they're dissolved. Now, what's kind of ironic about this is even though the pope never really did much to help them out, he let them all be burned at the stake. About a month after the Knights Templars died on that day in uh, March 1314, the pope died. And as the stories and legends go, right after the pope died, when they were having his funeral in a church, lightning struck the church, the whole church burns down, and the pope's body is burned to the point where there's, I mean, it just burns up. So it's kind of ironic he wouldn't help these people out that were being burned at the stake for ludicrous accusations. And uh, his body gets burned up after he dies. And what we learn from this is, is really some fascinating things. We see someone who thought they needed, a, they needed that seat at the world's table in order to be relevant. So let's get back to our main conversation we're gonna to have today and, and keep on to that story of the Knights Templar with Pope Clement, and, or Pope Clement V and King Philip IV all those names that kind of run together, but keep all that together. And we're gonna have a whole conversation about this. So again, the main thesis we're talking about today is that you need a seat at the world's table if you want to be relevant. And so what this really looks like, if we can get to the heart of this, is that for many people they'll say, well, you need a political party to be relevant. And this can really take on two forms. One form is that you feel that you are not relevant if there's not a political party advancing your beliefs. And now the other side of this is that there are people who say, well, you're not relevant because a political party is opposing you. But in both ways, it's kind of framed all the relevancy is around the political parties. But the truth is, is that politics is something that is beneath culture and the political systems are beneath culture and culture. It is beneath the hearts and minds of people because people are producing culture. So in the end, it all goes back to the hearts and minds, not the other way around. And this is what we find when we look to the gospel and we're gonna be looking at some scripture and Jesus always takes things to people's hearts and minds. So the primary expression, so the main heart, the, the real content of what we're talking about today is this idea that you have to submit yourself to worldly beliefs, worldly allegiances, whatever it may be, if you are going to have relevance. And we're talking about today that this is one of the seven deadly lies that the church believes. And it was quite deadly there for the Knights Templars, obviously. They they died because this Pope thought he wouldn't, you know, he he just won't take up for them like he should. Now, that's not to say they were without sin and without fault, but they were accused of some ludicrous stuff. So many people in the world, they get to this point because they say, well, if we don't do this, then we have nothing. If we want people to be interested in us, then we need to compromise with them. If we want to have approval in the world to be relevant and we've got to have some way of having access so we need to get involved with politics so that we have access but we have to to realize that this is quite a deadly sin now some people will look at it and say there's problems in the world and we need the government to do this rather than us being personally involved in changing minds and doing charity on the personal level and it kind of boils down to this idea that says i want something done i can't do it so i'm just going to get the big guns of the government to handle it so it really is a tragic tragic thing So as we continue our conversation, and I'm going to have some response from our other clergy gang here in the studio, our coin here really had two sides. The first side we're going to talk about is this one that says a seat at the table, and this is a seat at the world's table. Don't confuse that with the seat at the Lord's table, but the world's table. This is the idea that you need to bow down if you want a seat at the table. You have to give up your values if you want to keep your values. Which, you know, that sounds like a silly sentence, but that's what this lie does to you. You have to give up your values in order to keep them. Ridiculous. Pope Clement was on this side of the coin. Now, another place that we see this happening, and currently in China, President Xi, he said one of the big things he wants to do, big three things he wants to do is eradicate the gospel of Jesus Christ from China. And if you're not familiar with the church in China, there's actually an official government run and government regulated church called the Three Self Church. And President Qi, he did what a lot of totalitarians have done throughout the past. Nazis did this in Germany. They did it in Russia. He comes in and says, in all the churches, you've got to take down crosses. You've got to take down pictures of Jesus and replace them with pictures of me, President Xi. Maybe put up some Chinese flags and things that show the Chinese party. And there are people in China who struggle with this question. They say, well, we're not going to have a church. We're, we're going to all be taken to jail if we don't put up the picture of President Qi. So I'm going to throw this over to some of our studio here to talk about this. And Pastor Amanda, when we look at someone throughout history, like Pope Clement, or really in the modern day, if we look over in China, does the church in China actually have to have pictures of President Xi if they're to be relevant?
1: Right. Well, I think it even interesting under, under kind of the paradigm girding this, these questions is um, this idea of even wanting to be relevant. Um, but as we continue and look at this, especially in the context of the story or modern story of China um, we know that the underground church in China has lasted decades and uh, even in just a little recently we were talking about some church history uh, last Sunday we talked about a couple of martyrs in the early church and there's legend uh, that you know one of the early apostles when the original twelve made it all the way to China to share the gospel and then things kinda went underground even almost immediately after that for hundreds of years and missionaries that would go there would be, go proclaiming what they thought was a, a completely foreign concept of Christ to these people and found they're like oh no we call him by a different name but we we know that guy you know we know who this jesus is and then some things in history would happen and they would kind of try to expel all the christianity out and again then maybe they would open up a little bit and people would come back in thinking they're going to say this whole completely new gospel all the churches died at this point oh no And the church is thriving. And we've seen that in several countries, and and just China kind of is a good example of this, of this kind of ebb and flow of the Christian gospel being allowed in there or not allowed in there. And it's lasted, uh, well, centuries, um, two millenniums, uh, with or without the help of outside forces, with or without the help of, of the government, with or without really... Anything, um, it it sustains in of the the power of Christ um, to give the Sunday school answer, um, but it's and so it's interesting as we come to this and we're talking about what it does it mean to be relevant or why we need to have power on our side. Um, it, it becomes inconsequential to this call to share the gospel, and I, I think also um, it's just amazing too to also if, if relevance is the one thing we're we're trying to aim for. Uh, Many times the church, the the people in China want to make a distinction between the horrible things their government is doing and who they are. That the people are the people and the government is the government. And so by bowing down to the government, the church is actually making itself less relevant because it is compromising its message. And by doing so, it is saying, well, then the gospel really isn't good news because we kind of have to like have a little bit of a, a, a side gig over here to help supplement our power and our authority. And so, again, if if we're talking about relevance, you're making yourself actually less relevant by submitting to these rules about taking down the cross and putting up pictures of the president.
0: Wow. Very, very important things to think about. Pastor Mike, when we look to the story we heard earlier about Pope Clement V and how he related to the Templars, and you just imagine you're somebody in Europe at that time, are you blessed by a pope who bows down to someone like King Philip, or are you blessed by one who says no to King Philip?
3: Well, you, I think in, in that question we have to ask ourselves what is blessing, and blessing is life-giving. And, and, and the other thing is it's not just about what um, uh, Pope Clement V is going to um, bow down to, but what is he willing to die for and so this bowing down is sort of a a uh, he's willing to die for 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 by bowing down to the lordship of the king but for the people of God we have a mission and it's called the the missio Dei in the in the latin but the mission of God and so that in itself is to be that blessing and life giving in this world. It is to know, live and share Christ. And so the truth the, the answer is for me is simple here where for the Pope to say no to the king. He may lose his life over it. He may lose, you know, his his popeship or, or whatever. But in the long run he is Christ's representative. And so are we all. Yeah, this was a time where the Pope should
0: have employed the
3: Pope's lap yes, on I agree. someone. <laughs> and, and it's not that there might have been some corruption. There they might have been. But to be able to say that the church is a means of grace, that we give life, um, is much more than to say that we go out and slaughter. Yeah.
0: And to your point, they're probably, I mean, I, I have no idea what the Knights Templar, but if people are involved in it, there's probably a good chance that sin's involved in it. So I'm I never survive surprised when the sin nature does sinful things. Um, but that doesn't mean that you
3: get to do a sham as the king of France and be a total tyrant. You Well, this is for sure. You're not going to eradicate evil. You may kill it and kill people, but evil's going to raise its head. And I think we a good example of, of that portrayed in one of the movies is the the, the latest Star Wars movie, where. Emperor Palpatine. Al- Palpatine says, I've died once. I've died before. I've died before. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so evil continues to raise its head, whether it's in, in you know, corruption in one person or another. The, God cares about people and reconciliation. Evil is going to exist until Christ comes again. Amen. All right. Well, continuing on, let's go to the other side of the coin where we
0: find where it says you must obey and there's a gavel on this side of the coin now really what we find on this is the side that King Philip is on where he says the state is going to enforce my view of morality and you know maybe King Philip says this stuff enough to the point where he believes it even though it's pretty obvious he just wants this legendary treasure that everybody's talking about like it's blatantly obvious but you know he makes up all this stuff and I mean, that's oftentimes how this works, but he's a totalitarian and says, you will be made to obey the things I tell you to. I have my version of the belief system. You will be made to do this. Um, this really comes from the idea that you can ha- pass laws that force morality, that you can kind of force virtue by the laws that you have, which is not how laws work. Laws are made to adjudicate things, um, you, not to force um, virtue out of people because that's, that's just fundamentally not possible. But King Philip, he really takes this state and he combines that with the church in a really corrupt way um, and comes down with that gavel. I mean, he literally passes judgment on these people. I mean, the Templars were only supposed to be accountable to the Pope, but suddenly the King of France has more authority than even the Pope does in this matter. And basically is, is calling all the shots. So it's, it's a really, really diabolical thing. And this is the side of the coin where you just wanna use the state to legislate morality. So Pastor Amanda, One of the logical questions that somebody might have about all this is they look at someone like King Philip and say, is he really even in the church? Is he a leader in the Mm -hmm. church?
1: Right, And this is, uh, I mean, for us today, and especially I think in the United States where there's kind of a big philosophy of the separation of church and state, which is fairly delusional, I think. But anyways, um, it has, it had its place in history and it has its needs and necessity. Um, but as we look at this at this character, King Philip, and, and really this kind of intertwining of church power and political power, we find that often the church gave up its real power, its true purpose and calling, uh, to be a political power. And so then we look at King Philip, who is, in this instance, kind of acting as an authority within this political structure that calls itself, quote-unquote, the church. Um, And he becomes a great force within Christendom uh, for not really for good. Um, And we've seen other political leaders have great influence over the church. But if we're asking, are they a leader in the church, as in the church universal, the holy, the holy church universal, or the holy catholic church, catholic meaning universal, not a specific denomination. uh, Actually, he has no power within that context. Uh, He may influence it, he may try to enact some kind of power uh, but he is an outside force if he is acting outside of the will of God outside righteousness right orderedness uh, he's definitely acting outside of right orderness orderedness within uh, between himself and others um, also between himself and the church and so there's there's a lot of chaos and corruption that's going on and as we take this and kind of move this into our realm which I know you you've got questions for that but I think we have to ask ourselves is do we ever think that there's a political out- leader out there, whoever he or she is that's in power now, or we would like to be in power next year at the elections, or wait, no, that's this year. Oh, dear Lord. Um, <laughs> um, we would start to panic. But the point of this is that uh, they do not have ultimate power. But
0: Which we should be grateful for.
1: Yes, we should be very grateful. But as we start thinking, we're like, okay, how do we as human beings who live within a world uh, that, that has influence on us? How do we as then saved human beings um, interact with this world that, that seems to have power? And do we trust in King Philips of our day uh, to enact these things for us, or do we ever get to worry and panic when the King Phillips of our day are acting against us?
0: Yeah, very good questions. Pastor
3: Mike, mm-hmm. can you force virt- virtue on people? Can you force it? Well, no. I think it takes true transformation from God. Uh, you can you can have virtues, and but the true transformation of the heart. I, I think one of the questions you may be asking: Can you pass a law that will change people's hearts, and or or can you force virtue? It's similar is what your questions there, of what you're asking. I would say we should always participate in trying to have good laws that promote morality. However, true heart change is going to be from God uh, that, that helps us. It's, it is about understanding sometimes, but it is also a, when it comes to matters of the heart, it is um, a transformation that, that God does within us. And with that being said, uh, it's very difficult for just to have laws to change someone's heart, that that is not. I mean, we can have all the gun laws in the in and safety laws in there, but it's still going. It's not going to be the gun that's that's uh, the enemy here. It's going to be evil, it's and so nature. it's going to be yeah. It's going to be the evil nature. We need transformation, and to say that we need a great revival in this country. Amen. Um, for sure, Anthony, so pastor in right. this world. Let me restate that. Yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. And
0: you know what? Good things happen um, in the kingdom of God. And we know that no matter what happens in the world, no matter how many King Philips there come, the church has survived. Um, King Philip did not <laughs> do away with the church. And neither do people like Pope Clement who really want to bow down to things. You know, they, they're blips in history and we look back at them and we remember that and we can learn from them. They, I mean, they do substantial things that have real impact on people's lives, but um, Christ's church is, is bigger than any instance like Amen. that. Um, Pastor Anthony, so one of the things mentioned by, by Pastor Mike was this idea that um, there is some sort of relationship between our hearts and minds, but at the same time transformation is so much more power it, it it is a trump card above you know just legislation. Well, let me ask you this, Anthony, what comes first? the laws or the morals behind the laws? what really should come first in people's lives?
2: I think this is true both um, on a like a, a larger scale in terms of the development of like societies and even true on um, an individual level whenever it comes to things that we're working out and whenever we're developing rules and other sorts of things, that morals come first. And I think a really great instance where we can see this is in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The uh, people of God are living out life in service to God. And it's just sort of this... um, It's more mysterious. It's more connected with uh, sort of really their hearts and minds, their morals about how they thought they should be serving God and then Moses came with the revealed Ten Commandments and this is, we look at the Ten Commandments and we think, okay yeah, big deal big news, you know, anybody in the world could have told you that that was like cutting edge technology back then (laughs) to have something we
1: had two tablets, yeah
2: yeah, exactly, and I mean not just the material, but just these ideas were so cutting edge. Whenever people started working out for themselves, the nature of morality and that sort of thing was incredibly useful. And it was helpful for them to understand. And it was sort of like all of a sudden they were starting to realize, this is what we've been trying to do. This is what um, the rules are. This is how we're supposed to be playing this game that we've been playing this whole time. This game of serving God in some sense. And uh, so... Morals definitely come before laws, and there's a problem whenever you start to lose those morals because the laws can't stand alone. And you can see this happening with the people of God in Israel before exile especially and in the time of Christ. In both of those time periods, the people of God, they have they have the law. They have the morals worked out in a very uh, sort of simple almost rigid way, but then they don't have the morals that actually uh, motivate them underneath and supporting those laws. And so it turns out the laws start to become useless. And so once you have the laws without those morals, they start to lose their meaning. Yeah,
0: let's get to some scripture. Pastor Mike, I know you found some scripture that's really relevant to this and where we see James and John
3: come to to talk to Jesus. Would you read that for us out of Mark chapter 10? Yeah, Mark chapter 10, um, verses 35 through 37. Be attentive. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And then if we get, go a little further, uh, in verses 41 through 45, it says, it says that when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. That's the other disciples. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whosoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many.
0: Pastor Amanda, we read through scriptures like this and we see characters and we sometimes put ourselves in the shoes Can you walk us through what really are James and John asking for here?
1: Well, I think also, um, before we get to that question, I think this is a fantastic, really, insult Jesus is giving to the 12 in general, specifically to James and John when he says that you're acting like Gentiles. And really he's not just saying Gentiles as in this group of people you don't like, although there would have been some animosity probably between the Gentiles and the Jews. He's really saying you're acting like the Romans, the people who are oppressing you that you're so angry at. You're acting just like them because your mindset is, I want power. And this is really then to answer your question. What are James and John asking? They're not just asking for a nice seat or a comfy seat. They're asking for power. I think on a a very human level, or basic human level, they're asking for security. Um, These are... James and John, we know were sons of Zebedee, were fishermen. They probably weren't very well educated. They didn't have a lot of prospects in life. As socially, as kind of the social order stood, they were fairly low on it. Um, I was reading one commentary that said they were lower than shepherds even. So, you know, you have that significance at the birth of Christ with the shepherds coming. And then this baby at Christmas grows up into a man to call a fisherman. Like, it just... These... James and John didn't have a lot going for them. And then all of a sudden they see this glimpse at power and they hear this fantastic, you know, ma- master, this teacher, this rabbi saying, follow me and, you know, I will make you fishers of men and I will give you authority and power. And you're going to cast out demons and tell blind man they can see and all this great, fantastic stuff. And so they're thinking, okay, we got this. We can... We can have that kind of influence and affluence that we've never had before. And we can have security and this hope and this comfortability now. And so I think that's really what they're asking for. Mm, excuse me. They're, they're wanting this assurance that all the, the wonderful things they're experiencing in that moment is going to continue into eternity. And they won't have to worry about anything else because they've gotten in uh, with the guy upstairs.
0: Yeah, wow. <laughs> Anthony, what do you really see Jesus telling them when he responds to them in this text?
2: Well, I think, um, as Pastor Amanda put it, he really tells them pretty forwardly, you're coming with the spirit of the world. And he describes that to them openly. They've already made it pretty clear themselves that they're interested in some amount of power for their safety, for whatever other reasons. And um, he tells them that, This is the way of the rest of the world. And uh, in the world, the great ones are tyrants. And so then Jesus goes on to talk about how this is not true among you and it's the exact opposite. So their great ones are tyrants over them, but to become great among you must be your servants. So the ones who wish to become great among you must be your servants. It is the exact opposite. And so um, that's pretty forwardly what Christ is saying there, that the uh, way of the kingdom of God is um, basically the opposite of the way of the world.
0: Yeah, that statement there, their great ones are tyrants. And he's talking to them. He's basically saying, your great ones are tyrants. Just think about that. Think about that. Um, But Jesus does give that alternative there. Um, he tells them, you know, this is the kingdom of God is supposed to operate very differently about that. So, Pastor Amanda, um, how should, what should, what does this text tell us that we should care about? If you're somebody there 2,000 years ago, you're a bystander, maybe you don't know who Jesus really is. You've heard a little bit about this new rabbi. He's got his followers. You just watch this whole uh, moment happen. You know, what What would you be caring about and thinking about then if you're just looking at this?
1: Well, I think as a Pastor Dylan or sorry, your pastor, Pastor Anthony, was saying uh, the, this. You know, Christ really turning everything upside down. And, you know, that's a phrase we've used a lot in, in Christendom as we've talked about Jesus coming and turning the world upside down, and things being just completely opposite of what we thought it, it would be. And, and although that is true, I, I was. It dawned on me yesterday. We were uh, at a different church event, and I was like, "Why do we keep saying Jesus is turning things upside down?" He's not turning things upside down. He's turning things right side up. Amen. The world has turned stuff upside down. The mm. world has gotten it backwards. And Jesus didn't come to shake things up just because he had nothing better to do than to just make things, you know, different. He came to redeem, to make righteous, to make things back into order. And, and so I think, as whether we are the kind of random face in the crowd two thousand years ago, for us today who feel like we're a random person in the crowd, um. The thing that you care about it isn't about being first, or even about being last, because I don't know if um, if y'all have worked with kids or even teens a lot, and they hear this message, you'll see for about a week or two after you preach or teach this lesson, they're going to try really hard to be last, because then that makes them better than everyone yeah. else, and they're 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 still trying. There's a part of them and. I, uh, I shouldn't just restrict that to children and teens. There's adults that to this. We try to play these weird mind games with God as if we can trick him into liking us. And we forget he loves us. And he loves us so much that he's trying to make things right again. Right order, righteousness, right relatedness. And so we, if we seek after that righteousness, then we will find ourselves in the right place, whether that's first or in the middle or the last.
0: Amen. And let's go to a difficult question now. We're gonna ask the question about Pontius Pilate's soul. And this very particular question of, does Jesus care about Pilate's soul? I'm gonna read for you now out of the gospel according to St. John chapter 18 and verses 33 through 38. And it reads, then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 34, Jesus answered, do you ask me this on your own or did others tell you about me? And in verse 35, Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? You have your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And in verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And in verse 37, Pilate asked him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And there in verse 38, Pilate asked him, What is truth? So, Pastor Mike, this is really a profound question, and it's a very important question. Jesus, when he's being interviewed by Pilate, he kind of takes and turns things around. It, it suddenly becomes Jesus really interviewing Pilate. I have this question for you, Mike. Um, does Jesus care about Pilate's
3: soul? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think the beautiful thing here is, is, is this is really Jesus preaching to all of us, but in that situation, in that context, it is one-on-one. Pilate and Jesus, and in every person, whether they're living it or not, I think every person somewhere deep inside them longs for justice, complete justice, and truth. And right here, Jesus is saying, truth and justice is not going to be found in this world, but in my kingdom, which is not of this world. And, and the, it, it intrigues, what is truth? And that is a good question that really invites us to go back and read the Gospels over and over again as Jesus shows and demonstrates us by the life that he lived what truth is. So yes, he does care about Pilate's soul, cares about every person's soul. You know, you bring up
0: this drive that we have for truth and justice people contemplate, are people naturally good or are they naturally bad? What we know is that we are created in the image of God Amen. and we have inherited sin. Both of those things are where we're at as, as humans. We do have a natural sin nature that causes us to be sinful. It takes us to where we have sinful inclinations and they are naturally desirable. But Jesus in that moment, he is speaking to Pilate as a child of God. And he's speaking to that, you are created in the image of God. And there's something deep going on there, and I think it's a fascinating thing to examine. And well, I'll let you go ahead and respond to that.
3: Well, human beings are a creation of God, and each individual is is one of God's creatures. And God cares about not just human beings, but if he cares about every sparrow, and no pun, (laughs) well, maybe a little pun intended there, Pastor uh, Amanda, but if he cares for every creature, how much more would he not care for the creature that he created in his image? And that is not just an image with with bodily parts, but it is this image that seeks perfect love, yeah. absolute truth, righteousness, um, and, and absolute beauty as well.
0: Yeah. So Pastor Amanda, we know that Jesus always gives people a choice. This is a fundamental aspect of Christianity. It doesn't try to force or legislate you into <laughs> um, salvation because it can't. But uh, that's, people try to do that, but it, it's not what the gospel tells It's, it's not how creation works. Um, but Jesus, he gives people a choice. He purchased something for them that they were unable to have for themselves. So it's not their power that's doing this, but Jesus gives people a choice if they will accept this gift when you see this moment, it's almost as if he's taking Pilate to that moment of choice. And I just want to ask you, what choice do you see Jesus giving to Pilate? What choice is being given to him?
1: Well, I think it's letting Pilate know he has a choice. Um, I I think we we hear, you know, Pilate's very quick to say, well, you know, or Jesus tells him, did you say this on your own or did others tell you? Um, Pilate's kind of He's the middleman in the middle in the middle of all this. He's got, on one side of him, the Jewish leaders uh, who are yelling at him, who are really on the edge of a revolt. And then he has above him Rome and the emperor and different people and those kind of power telling him, you better keep the Jews under wraps. And so he's really just trying to keep the peace. He doesn't want to really get involved if he doesn't have to. He just wants to basically fade into the shadows, get away from all this. And Jesus is telling him, no, you actually can do something if you want. You have a choice. And also, I think it's very fascinating that Jesus then tells him what his kingdom is about. And, you know, Jesus has spoken in parable and his teachings. He's talked to his disciples about what the kingdom is about. But here in front of Pilate, he kind of lays it out very clear, very succinctly in like two or three sentences. My kingdom doesn't operate the way you want it to operate. And he's giving Pilate that choice Then. You can keep living in this struggle and in this um, chaos of being torn between Rome and, um, and Jerusalem. Or you can operate under my kingdom. And, you know, I don't know what would have happened if Pilate made a different choice. But I think we have to believe, as Wesleyan Arminians, that every person involved in the biblical narrative had a choice. They were not forced by some cosmic entity to do certain things. Now, I mean, we we definitely understand that that Jesus always knew that that his ministry would lead him to a cross. But that didn't mean Pilate or even uh, the Roman soldiers had to uh, crucify him. Um, They could have made another choice. Well, maybe the Roman soldiers kind of had to because somebody was making them do it. But what I'm saying is they had this free This was
0: going to happen. This is inevitable.
1: But, But... Yeah, and even in the midst of that inevitability, each individual person had that choice of what their part was going to play in the Christ narrative.
2: Yeah. Anthony? Yeah, I think uh, Amanda worded it pretty well um, there on the end, and that's sort of where I was going to take that too, is just that um, it was certain that the world would crucify Jesus. Now, Pilate and Caiaphas and other sorts of... Uh, people like that the role that they played in that was up to them and they chose to identify with the world and to uh, play those roles Um, and so that's all that I was going to contribute to it just that uh, the world in itself because it is so polar opposite to the nature of God if it was to remain the world really had to crucify God
0: well let me ask you this Pastor Mike I'll, I'll throw this to your direction first if you can imagine being there and watching this happen, where would your heart be left if you just watched this happen between Pilate and Jesus?
3: Well, obviously, I think the, the presence of Christ there facing uh, just an ultimate brutal, you know, death that awaits to hear this conversation, to hear him stand, it has an extreme power on hearts. Uh, and and we see Christ-like martyrs over and over again, not denouncing or not saying uh, yes to the world, but saying yes to the mission of God and the kingdom of God. And that's what's Christ doing. But it would not only warm my heart, but break my heart. It would cause transformation tremendously for me. Just And when I, when I hear this scripture and when I read this scripture, it, it reminds me that Christ stood for something, and he did not waver, and yeah. that is the mission that that God the Father called him to do. Pastor Amanda, if you could imagine being in this moment, again, we see movies depict
0: this. Imagine mm-hmm. you're standing there; Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. You see this conversation with Pilate, you're just a bystander watching this. What does this do to your heart? In-
1: I think there's such a, a dichotomy or these this op- these two opposing forces that's happening. I mean, you see, Pilate. He sounds very frustrated in this biblical passage, and a lot of the the ways we depict it, both whether it's a painting or a movie, he's always so confused and frazzled, and Jesus is always just very calm, very sure, and 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 he doesn't respond in in anger or tries to kind of outwit him in some kind of. Uh, show-offy way he just simply is and so we see that there's these two kingdoms at battle here and i think that's what's quite um impressive also is even though we can kind of say well there seems to be two different kingdoms at war here one kingdom is very obviously winning the battle even in the midst of a trial uh where its king is about to get killed like there's just this obvious tension that's coming out through the narrative that we're still moving to something quite victorious even if it has to go through the cross.
0: Pastor Anthony in John 18 38 that last verse it says Pilate asked him what is truth and after he had said this he went out to the Jews again and he told them I find no case against him. Now historically we know the Jews they're making a technical case against Jesus they're saying oh he's the king of the Jews therefore he's an insurrectionist therefore Rome you've got to kill him. Again He's not actually, he's not like he's Xerxes, who just rolled in on a chariot or something like this. He's not um, something like that. So they're making a technical case um, because they really don't understand the full gravity of this. They've come and just said he's an insurrectionist. And Jesus realizes that people, regardless of our best intentions, we're not really swayed by technicality and reason as much as we are by things that are persuasive, that are emotionally desirable. I have got to where I really define wisdom as when the mind really has victory over the heart because so many times if there's a battle between the heart and the mind, the heart's almost always gonna win. And Jesus realizes that people, they are creatures with souls and our souls are plagued with moral and emotional problems. It's very rare that we spend a lot of our time caring about the technical and detailed ones. And Jesus, he gives a spiritual answer to a technical accusation. And is that something we need to walk away from this text that Jesus answers technical questions with spiritual answers because he realizes that at the root of this pseudo-technical question, it's actually a spiritual problem anyway.
2: So is that what we should be doing? Absolutely, I think this is actually one of Jesus's most underrated superpowers. Everybody wants to talk about how he can walk on water and turn water, water into wine. But I think honestly, his ability to address uh, these sort of worldly situations with the right perspective, the spiritual perspective, one that has the right relationship with God, is so incredible. And he does it time and time again. People will come asking the wrong questions, seeking to justify themselves. Who should I treat as my neighbor? And Jesus says that's the wrong spirit. The question you should be asking is, who is the good neighbor? And go and be like him. You know? Um, so many times they come to Jesus trying to make all sorts of accusations, whatever else. And Jesus sees right through it. And he knows precisely what is right in the situation. And I think this is a perspective that we can adopt by spending more time in scripture and in prayer and in treating situations more prayerfully as we are going through them and actively considering what it is that is important to God while we're facing them. You know, um, we all get caught up in sort of personal disputes on a regular basis as human beings. I think if you associate with human beings, you're going to be caught up in personal disputes and you can be perfect and still be caught up in personal disputes like Jesus was. (laughs) So um, I think that if we're addressing them prayerfully, though, then we can use those situations to continue to glorify God and to overcome them the way that God would have us do it and not the way That the world would have us
0: yeah and that's a big lesson we can learn from this so many times things wear a mask of a technical situation but there's really a spiritual matter beneath it that's really how the world operates we are surrounded by spiritual warfare doesn't always look like somebody twisting their head around and you know contorting and doing something crazy up a wall and spewing stuff everywhere a lot of times it looks like this false accusations um, you look back to the Templars, there were probably real accusations that could be brought against them, I and mean, the Pope was considering that, but then the spiritual warfare steps in, the sin nature steps in and says, you know, I think we're going to come up with some wild witchcraft stuff. Say they're all doing sexually moral things with one another. Yeah, you know, this sounds better than just actually getting into to technicals, because it's not about that. It's about spiritual warfare, and it's about the, the sin nature trying to have victory over over anything which would be godly, And the solution to all this is that when Jesus gives us a choice, and he has offered us such a gift, to allow him into our heart, and when we deal with others, look to the hearts and minds of those around us in the world. The gospel did not need a conversation with Pilate to be relevant, but Pilate needed a conversation with the gospel. That's something which was a true part of history. Pilate is blessed, really, to have had this opportunity. Now, again, what ultimately becomes of Pilate, I'm not here to to judge where he is at, um, but we know that God is interested in people on a personal level. He's not just interested in Pilate because you just happen to be the one in power right here in this particular place. No, Jesus speaks directly to his soul. Let's go back and talk with our skunk, Stanley Stankup, and tell him that we think his new idea is a bad idea, and it's a deadly lie. Well, I've come back to join Stanley Stank up here and talk about what he shared with us earlier. So, Stanley, I have some news for you.
1: What's that? Have you found some new influence in the world around you?
0: Not quite. In fact, we spent some time considering the idea that we need a seat at the world's table in order to have relevance. And we found that to be a lie. In fact, we found it to be an old lie and an old deadly lie at that. How so? Well, you see, Jesus... He did not need the politics of his day and age in order to be relevant. He realized that the hearts and minds of people are far more important than our political systems.
1: Well, I, I guess that's right, but, but what if the government tries to persecute you? Then then you'll be left with nothing.
0: Well, you see, you have it backwards, Stanley. And the church, when we look at history, the church has always done well when it was persecuted, so long as the church was rooted in orthodoxy and doing the things which the church was called to do.
1: But. How can you even worship if the government tells you no? Well,
0: Jesus, He is the King of kings, and His kingdom is above the nations of this world. Furthermore, governments, they are made up of people, and Jesus cares for their souls as well. The world is changed when hearts are changed.
1: Well, I mean, that makes sense. I guess you are right. Um, Oh, we'll have to wait till next week then to find a new idea.
3: Alright, we'll see.
0: back in the studio we have determined that Stanley Stankup is selling some lies but we're going to have we'll see where things go we're going to have some patience Um, we're going to see where things go with Mr. Stanley Stankup over the next few weeks but let's have some final thoughts here before we close Pastor Mike I know you had that riddle at the beginning of the program can you take us back to that and share us the solution for
3: it I can Um, and so the riddle was this um, Kings and, of course, queens, may cling to power. And yet, the jester's call got his call. But, as you may discover, the common one outranks them all. And how is this so? It indeed is the ace.
0: Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. (laughs) When he first gave us that, that riddle. I wasn't sure exactly where it was going but that is interesting. Interesting conclusion on that.
3: Well and I think looking back at the program in the the understanding of power and and I think Amanda probably said something so so um, extremely important and that is that Jesus comes to turn things right side up. Upside down, well the world's already there. Jesus turns things right side up. And he is, well, he's not just an ace in a hole. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one transforms. Amen.
0: Amen. Pastor Amanda, would you close us in prayer as okay. we draw to an end?
1: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we have talked, as we have listened, may you speak to our hearts. May we trust in you to, to be all that you have promised to be that you will be faithful to enact your will on this earth. May we be willing participants in that. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. With that, Amen. God love you and have a blessed day.